Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast. I am so incredibly excited to have Allison Cloutier here with us today. Um, We've been getting some questions about therapy ideas for the younger students on our caseload, um, and she is an amazing resource. Um, And before we dive into all of her questions, I just wanted to share a little bit of her experience. So she has worked in a pediatric private practice setting since 2011, um, and she graduated from the University of New Hampshire uh, with her master's degree in speech language pathology. And she also concentrated in early childhood and augmentative and alternative communication. Um, and she has some amazing resources. She has she does a lot of education um, for parents and for um, people growing their private practice and child care centers, like all of the good stuff. And she'll be able to do that um, description much more justice. But I'm really excited to talk to her today um, just to hear a little bit more about her experience. And she is going to be sharing so many practical therapy ideas that we can use with the younger students on our caseload. So without further ado, um, here is Allison. Thank you for having me here today. Yeah, I am really excited to dive into this topic. Um, But before we go into all of the amazing therapy tips and ideas. Um, I'm really curious just to hear a little bit more about your background um, and just how you decided to focus working up with the younger population and um, just where you're at now and what you're up to. Yeah, I think um, really looking back at just kind of who I am as a person, I have always been really interested in working with kids. Um, I know I've spent most of my teenage years, either babysitting or working in after-school programs. It's just really um, a population that I love to work with. I love their energy and just having fun. And they're just so involved in everything that you're doing. It's just really a place that I, I love to be. And when I was doing my graduate clinical placements, I was in you know all the different settings they have us try. And when I was in the pediatric um, private practice setting, I also had the opportunity in that clinic placement to co-treat with an OT. And I just found that I just loved the environment of having some more of that flexibility. And I really loved the connection I was able to make with the parents in addition to the children being in that setting. And I'm always has been, I've always been very drawn to that play-based family-centered format and that setting really allowed me to do that. So I also found that when you're in that private practice setting, um, it kind of caters logistically to that younger population. You know, you have your early intervention kiddos and then you have kiddos who get picked up from the school district. And then there's somewhere that in between where they've aged out of early intervention but they might still be in like a daycare setting um, or parents haven't pursued the school district for services. And so we kind of have that age in between where sometimes um, 
you know, they're looking for supports without those resources. So just logistically, I found that that age has fallen onto my caseload a lot. Um, so other than that, you know, it's really just my comfort level. And I love playing with them and figuring out a way to take their goals and their needs and integrate it into a format that is really meaningful for them. Yeah, I can totally relate. Um, I, like, I'm i definitely a school-based SLP at heart, um, but I did get to work in um, some clinics in grad school, and I love the because it's like a different level of collaboration when, because in the schools we can collaborate with other professionals, but I don't know about you, but when I was in the clinic, I shared an office with several other physical therapists and occupational therapists. Like we had lunch together all the time. Um, so, and we saw our clients together sometimes. Um, so it was just really cool. Um, just an awesome opportunity to really collaborate. Um, and then I definitely saw that too in the, um, like the, that transition between uh, early intervention and the schools um, and getting to work with those kids. Um, and they are definitely so much fun. Um, and I'm especially excited uh, to talk to you about it today because I feel like for a lot of us, it's not our natural area of strength. Like we feel a little bit overwhelmed with what to do. And um, especially if we are in the schools and we're we primarily work with older students. I, I'm really excited for you to share um, your tried and true tips and tricks um, to help us gain a little bit of confidence. Yeah, and I think um, as I've done a lot more education with parents or early childhood providers or even other speech pathologists, it's I wasn't as aware of how easy this that play-based and that connecting comes to me. And it's something I've had to remind myself that this is easy for me and it's a comfort level, but it's not for everyone else. So I've really had to um, take another perspective on that. And that's really what's led me down the path of doing more education for other professionals as well, is being able to take my knowledge and share that information in a way that's helpful, you know, in the same way that when I um, was asked to consult with a high school student, I was like, okay, I can do that, but let me um, tap into some of my resources first. And, you know, just being able to share that expertise is really helpful within our field. Yeah, I love that. And because um, I know you've had a lot of experience with like connecting to and creating relationships with like local daycares and preschools and doing that education with those providers and parents and everything. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like and kind of what you're doing there? Because I think that's a huge component of it too. Yeah, I think um, one of the places we would start with there is that the private practice I work for is actually in the same plaza as a daycare. So we first built a relationship just with them. And a lot of that was um, mostly for ease of the parents. So we do um, either bill insurance or have cash pay. So we have a little bit of flexibility with the location of where we provide those services. And what we found was for the parents whose children are in those daycare settings, they're usually full-time working parents. Um, so it was very helpful for us to be either on site or be able to take that child. We would just walk across um, the sidewalk into our office. So we did one or the other. It was really helpful for those families to have that as a resource. And then what we also found was that those teachers were so um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? They so were had such a desire to help those children that it was it created some really great conversations between myself and those child care providers of how they could support that child within that setting. So I would also um, then start to do some of my sessions in their daycare classroom. So similar to what a push-in session would be. And I was able to then be in their environment. Their teachers could see how I was working with the child. And then their peers also started to understand a little bit more as well. Um, If it was a child who had more significant needs, we could do a little bit of educating with the peers. And so overall, I just found it was became a really valuable resource to everybody that was involved. And then Of course, the parents, we would keep them updated. I would write a note every day. And if I was a parent that I didn't get to see face-to-face very often, we would have regularly scheduled phone calls just to kind of give them um, an update and answer any questions they would have. And then I also found that as I worked with this age population, that the parents were looking for the same thing at their centers. So when I first started creating relationships with other centers in our area, a lot of it came from my client connections. So their parents would ask for um, either giving their teachers some tips or being able to provide services on site wherever their child was attending. So I started to build a relationship by seeing certain children on site. I then became a familiar face. Um, The teachers were familiar with me and the work that I did, and I slowly started getting referrals from them. And thus far, I would say that most of the majority of my referrals either come from word of mouth from an existing client or they come from those daycare centers where I have built a relationship with them. And then another part that I found was as those teachers were trying to learn a little bit more about that child's specific needs, that I was giving a lot of education to them. And So then by um, necessity and some need, I actually started creating workshops for those teachers. And that then allowed me to share more in-depth information, allow for asking and answering questions. And then I was able to take that information and outreach to other daycares and preschools. And then from there, it just kind of snowballed into just creating more relationships, which helps them. It helps me. It helps the client. And it's actually been a really wonderful thing. Yeah. And that's so cool. And I love one of the things that um, like I struggled with a little bit uh, working in private practice was that it felt like it was disconnected from like the child's context because I just saw them like 30 minutes twice a week or whatever it was. And and I would like try and I would teach the parents strategies and they'd sit on the sessions and we would do all that. But I love that you are working in those childcare centers or preschools, whatever they, um, whatever context those are. Um, and like, that's their environment for a huge component of their young lives. So that's, that's amazing. I love that. Um, you were able to find a way to get that context. Yeah. And I found that I, um, as I went in and I was just doing like, I called it speech and language therapy basics And I would talk about what was typical for each age as far as speech and language development goes, when you should refer a child, um, talking to parents about it, collaborating with other professionals. How do you know who to refer to based on what you're seeing? And I would get so many questions from the child care providers that, you know, they really are looking for what's best for those children. And it then gave them really a gateway to 
talk to the parents with confidence as well, and then send them to someone who could then really, um, you know, do the evaluation and take on that information. So it does, it's, it's been a way that's really created a great collaboration between everyone. Yeah, I love that. That makes a lot of sense. And thanks for giving us a little bit of insight there. Um, and then I'd love to get into the therapy side of things. Um, so in your in your bio, you mentioned a play-based approach for therapy. Um, and I think that's what we hear a lot of when we're talking about intervention for those younger students. Um, and I'm curious if you could share a little bit of what that looks like for you and any tips that you'd be willing to share um, just to like help us kind of if we are feeling like we're struggling with that, like what could we do to set us, set ourselves up for success? Yeah, I have a few um, kind of different thoughts and tips here. So the first I, I tend to do is just really figure out what motivates that child. And, and typically at the onset for me, it's, well, I mean, I guess it would be for most therapies, but really for those younger ones is really building that rapport with them. So I often ask parents or teachers if that child has a specific topic or interest or characters or things that they like. And I will try to integrate that into our initial session, just really trying to create that positive environment for them. Um, and one thing too, it's, it takes a lot of self-awareness, which I think is a little bit tricky sometimes, is really when you're building that rapport to get to that play-based level is really gauging where the child's at in their energy level. So I always like to have some kind of movement with my younger kiddos, but some kids, um, you know, if they're a little bit anxious, if I'm like super excited, it might be a little intimidating to them. Or if they're a child who moves around a lot and needs a lot of input and I'm really quiet, then sometimes they don't connect to me as well. So it's kind of having to morph a little bit more into their comfort zone, just so you can get into a place that the work that you're doing will be really receptive from them. Um, so one of the first suggestions too beyond that is definitely that movement piece. I found for this age, it's just so important for them to be learning through movement. And I do some really simple things just like, um, you know, even just crawling through a tunnel in my office, I do a lot of hide and seek. So whether it be, um, little figurines or puzzle pieces or pictures or cards and I'll place them around my room and of course when they're younger I don't really hide them necessarily but they're just placed in different areas and they get to go collect them and bring them back to me. Um, I have a lot of things with sensory input. Um, I don't know if you've ever have you ever heard of a yogi bow before? I haven't. Okay it's like a it's like a massive beanbag, basically, and they're they're a little pricey, but in my book, I use it almost every single day, so it's been well worth it. Um, they're kind of like a, a massive beanbag, but they have little tiny beads inside, and you can take the outside zipper off to wash it when you need to, which is wonderful, but I use it for letting kids run and jump on top of it. Um, I might kind of squish them up inside of it. I do a lot of singing songs where I like will rock the Yogi Bow back and forth. So they're getting some movement and some input, but they're, um, you know, in a safe space as well. So um, I guess those would be my first points would be that find out what motivates them and really get on their level to build that rapport, gauge where your energy level is compared to the child, and then adding in a lot of movement for them if that's what works well for them. 
Yeah, that's perfect. And I definitely want to check out a yogi bow now. That sounds amazing. <laughs> They're really comfortable um, to sit on yourself if you're writing reports too when children aren't in your office. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, I used to have a, just a like a cheap bean bag. I don't even remember. I might have like gotten it from a teacher or something, but it was super fun to use in therapy. But this like the massive bean bag seems even more amazing. And you can wash it. Um, and I know that wasn't the highlight, but <laughs> it is actually, for most, it is actually for most therapists and parents. Um, and we'll even do like, I'll have them sit in a cube chair or on a circle square so they know their space. And I'll even sometimes take like, um, a Buffalo drum. And as they run, I go like, do, 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 boom. And as they jump and they just think it's absolutely hilarious. So, um, I do have some more tips there too, but I just didn't want to get too far ahead of myself in answering your question. So, no, this is perfect. Keep on rolling. Okay. So, um, another thing I do a lot of is that imaginative play. So, I will have a lot of materials and have them, um, you know, more like acting out and playing with figurines and moving the pieces around. Because, of course, if you're looking at our like, three and four-year-olds specifically, um, some kids will sit and do more drill work with you, but a lot of them will do that just for a moment and then it's not meaningful to them. So I'll find ways. I actually have little bags that I call sound bags and I'll have them labeled with, um, I have, I have all the vowels and I have like beginning constant sounds. And just as I'm, you know, going to, little thrift stores or things that my own daughter has. If I see like a little figurine that has that sound in it somewhere, I'll add it into my sound bag. And then I'll use those either for the hide and seek or digging in a bean bucket or sticking them into Play-Doh and we pull them out. And then I use that to address the sounds. And it's great because then you don't have to be constantly brainstorming for a session. Um, Like does this game, does this activity, actually target what we need, but it is a way that you can easily integrate those into play-based therapy. So then you can use them in multiple contexts as well. Um, And then another thing I do a lot of is books, of course. So I have an endless supply of books for kiddos and we do different sounds or whether it just be engagement or we talk about the pictures, um, having them do repetition. And like, there's just so many different ways that I can use those books in therapy with those kiddos as well. Yeah, that sounds great. And you know, I'm a huge fan of using books in therapy. Uh, so we could go on and on about that. Uh, awesome. And so just a quick recap, like finding out what motivates the student and you can, or the child and parents and daycare providers and all that are a great resource for that. Um, gauging the child's energy and matching that, like getting on their level, incorporating movement, imaginative play, using books. Um, is there anything else that you would add or like any favorite therapy materials along those lines? Yeah, I would also say anything that adds like that element of surprise is typically highly motivating at this age. So I do a lot of um, really simple, like hiding something under a little blanket and we do either the peekaboo or we're trying to say like, Ooh, what is it? <gasps> Look what we found inside. Um, a lot of element of surprise. I do a lot too of having 
like a box or a bag where I put something inside and just try to get their engagement that way. Um, And then also really getting comfortable with being a little bit silly because that's how really to get some of these kiddos to be engaged, um, especially if we're looking at, you know, if we're already three or four or even five, but we're on a developmental delayed pattern of some sort, we sometimes are needing to backtrack really that engagement piece. So that element of surprise typically keeps them engaged much more. Um, I also have this little, um, it's like a little pig puppet, but he eats different things. So I'll do a lot of the pig puppet will hide and we have to ask for him. And then when he eats something, he does a little bit of tickling. So using that same like sensory piece to engage them as well. And if you have a space that allows you to explore different sensory experiences um, without making too much of a mess, I would say that that's another way I often engage these younger kiddos as well. Um, I do also have access to a swing in my office. So that typically has been a really great resources resource for me as well, adding in that movement, that engagement piece. Um, it's really easy to do when you have access to something like a swing. As far as some of my specific favorite, like actual um, activities that you could, or games you could buy for this age, I really love, if you haven't heard of the company that they're called Fat Brain Toys, they create a lot of really like, they're simple, um, well, the younger ones, they're very simple, like cause and effect, but they're not all musical and lights and everything. So one I really love is called the Spin Again, and it's um, kind of like plastic gears that you put one on top of like a, a plastic pole and it just spins all the way down. So it's a really quick cause and effect, but kids really seem to love watching the spinning. They also make one called Dimple Duo, and it's um, like silicone poppers. So you'd have like a tray. It's kind of hard to explain without seeing it, but there's like a tray with six um, different colored like silicone ovals. But when you push it, it pops through, and then you can just flip the board over, and you can pop them back through the other way. So my kids really enjoy that one. Um, I love another company I really enjoy is they're called Blue Orange. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. They have like the Spotted Junior and Telltale. Those are two of my favorite. They're just a little round tin and they have picture cards inside of them. Um, And this would be for the older end of that young population or into early elementary. They um, Spotted Junior is where you have... um, animals and there's a match so every card has one animal that matches on the other card so you can flip them over and then they're scanning they have to find the match and then they name it and then typically I expand on that and we either talk about that animal depending on what their goals are Um, we either describe the animal we talk about what it does or I'll be like oh that's a fish it swims what's another animal that swims so we're able to expand on that language with those games And then one that I have to mention, I really love, it is, again, for a little bit older because it has some small parts, but it's called Enchanted Cupcake Party. And it's like um, little, they're all princess themed, but they're little cupcakes and there's a cup, a cake, a frosting and a topper. And I've used it for 
working on lots of different sounds. I most often do it for sequencing for kids. So whether they are receptively listening to my directions as I'm describing, or I have them expressively describe to me what it is that I'm supposed to be making. And then once we're done, we like go through the whole sequence again. Then we do a little bit of pretend play, putting it in an oven, taking it out. Sometimes we'll make like a little shop with it. Um, So that's like one activity that you can do a lot of different levels of play with. And then one thing, um, whenever I have a graduate student with me who's learning, I give them this very specific challenge. So it's something I think that would be fun for your listeners to try as well. So I challenge them to take like one theme box. So I have a lot of plastic boxes that I put like a bunch of materials that are under one specific theme. And I tell them that they have to use that box for all of the clients that we're seeing. So it really makes you try to take like one group of materials and figure out how would this target receptive language, expressive language, speech speech sounds, engagement, social pragmatics. And it's really getting you used to looking at materials in a different way. So that's a fun way to kind of take what you have and think about how you could use it in different ways. Ooh, I love that idea. And we're going to, we are going to get to do a little bit of that in just a moment, which is super exciting. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so I think I'm sure once we're off, I will probably think about all kinds of other ones that are my favorite for this age. Um, but I was really trying to think about ones that were a little different. Of course, you know, I always have like a baby doll and stuffed animals and the typical like toys you would think for that age. But those are a few that are a little, um, you know, less common that I thought listeners would enjoy to have as resources. Yeah. And I always use like I a lot of the ones you listed are new to me. Like I have, I don't think I've used fat brain toys. I have used the blue or orange, like spot it and telltale. Yep. Um, the enchanted cupcake party sounds amazing. <laughs> It is. And it was hard because it does have like the pieces are are fairly small. So it's not really for super young kiddos, but the kids, I can tell you, they just, they love building them. They love talking about them. They love telling stories the pretend play. It's definitely a very um, versatile toy at my office. And that one actually stays. It doesn't leave because <laughs> it can be used in so many yeah, different I love ways. That. Um, and I definitely use lots of baby dolls, stuffed animals, like the play house and the play farm are big ones, like all the Fisher yes. stuff. Um, and then, yeah, uh, I can't remember what it it's called, but I love the, I don't even know, like, I know it's at Target, but it's like a, a, a I don't know. It's kind of like a jail, <laughs> I guess, but it has the yeah, it has all the different doors and then they have to match up the keys with the shape and the color and you can put, I think it probably- Things inside. Yeah. Um, I think it's like an animal hospital or like animal critter. <laughs> yeah, hospital. like a, I think critter is in the name, but that is- Critter, one. yes, because I use that one too. Like I think it's amazing for like to target so many of the goals that we talked about, like describing, following directions. You can use it for- articulation. Um, if you have, like, if you have your little, uh, small figurines, you could put, you could just pick whatever, um, or categories and just grabbing whatever items we have. But that was one that was huge, 
Yeah, I have that one too. And what's great about it is that's one where like the product itself is just one thing, but you can always change what's inside to like match the season or match a theme. So kids continually enjoy. One thing my kids, my younger ones that they really love in that one is putting a lot of wind up toys. So they get to open it and then we have a wind up toy. Um, I actually thought of two more too. So another fat brain toy is called squigs. They are picture like um, little builders, you know, that would have like a suction cup on them. So my daughter right now, she's 20 months old and she'll take it and she'll like push it on the table. And then when you, when you pull it up, it makes like a pop sound. So they, and that's another one I'll put like around the room. I'll go stick it on different surfaces and they'll get to go um, and kind of pull them off and, and pop them. And then another great um, activity for this age. And of course, I love like a lot of the themes are really great, um, but it's also fun to have those open-ended toys. So similar to the critter, there's one called a tot tube. Have you ever heard of a tot tube before? I haven't. Okay, so it's it's basically like a long plastic tube, but what's nice about it is it breaks into three separate parts. So you can put it um, in a box that it comes in and store it away when you don't need it. And so it's kind of, it's like three plastic pieces and you put them together, but the middle is clear, like you can see through it. So I've used this um, even for kids, like if we're just putting like cars or balls that roll like down them and we do ready, set, go, car in, blue car, car go, like all those simple combinations. Um, but I've also found that since it's a really like smooth plastic, if I have any kind of plastic figurines, um, like recently I was just doing an Arctic animal theme. So I had little plastic Arctic animals. And if you put that in the top, it slid right down. So it went, it doesn't have to be something that like rolls or has wheels. Like a lot of things would get sent down there. Um, I've also used the tot tube with a little bit older kiddos where I have ping pong balls and I draw either letters or words on them. So we get to send something down and then either name the letter, tell me what sound it makes, give me a rhyming word or reading, like all of those things. So it's a fun way just to add another element of like movement and engagement um, with those different goals. And then what I like about the middle part being clear plastic is when I've had really younger ones where we're really just working on like initiating or basic signing or basic um, speech, I will put something in there and then I'll hold it so they can like see it kind of floating in the middle. And then I wait for whatever word it is that we're using, whether it just be vocalizing or out or please or ball or my turn or whatever it is that I'm using as a target. I'll wait for that and then I can dump it out and then they get to receive whatever it was that was inside. Yeah, I love that. Now I've never had the tattoo, but I used I mean, this sounds like way better because you can like manipulate it a little more to have like more control over the like to set up opportunities. Maybe manipulate is kind of a negative connotation, um, but we like we're very strategic in how we set things up. Like some of our kids aren't super excited to communicate, um, so we're setting up those opportunities. But I always use like a ball track, uh, yes, kind of thing, and that was. Like I would use it for that purpose too. And that was 
super fun. But the top two, you can use like all different figurines and have like five bazillion more options, which is cool. Yes. And that's what it's, so it's a product, but it does leave, it has a specified use, but it leaves a little bit more open-ended flexibility depending on what you want to use with it. Yeah. And those, like, especially with limited budgets, we want those kinds of toys where we can get lots and lots of bang for our buck and use them over and over and still have it be like fun and engaging and all that. Yes. And I, I think the tot tube, I have it listed on my website with a link to Amazon. Um, but I'm trying to, I think it's around $30, I think. Um, which sometimes I had someone that was like, Oh, but you can buy like a plastic tube for a lot cheaper. I was like, yes, but this one has the clear middle and it packs in a box nice and neat. <laughs> so those two to me are are worth spending the money on. <laughs> yeah. I just looked at that and it's like $19.95 at least oh, okay. so right now. Yep. So it could definitely yep. change, but um, yeah. And it looks so fun. Like I'll also link to it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I love it. <laughs> yes, it's great. I want to go work in, uh, with these kiddos again. This is so fun. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it, it, it's a lot of fun, but it sometimes I, I work with middle schoolers right now two days a week too, and I'm like, oh, my energy level is a lot different at the end of the day when I'm not trying to run around and play too. <laughs> yeah, play is tiring sometimes, <laughs> but it's a whole different challenge with the older kids. <laughs> Yes, yes, it is. But I think it's more um, like because you're taking their what their needs are and trying to integrate it. Like that's really how play based therapy becomes the most effective. So you kind of have to be a little bit on you know on top of your game while you're while you're playing mm-hmm. with them. So. Yeah, and you never know how a kid is going to show up. Like you might plan this activity and then they show up in a mood, and then it's like, oh wait, nope, let's rethink this whole thing. So you're making teeny tiny decisions like all day long, every minute of your session, uh, which is tiring. I have a two-year-old right now um, who has very minimal words and I'm like, oh yes, he's going to love this. And then I show up and he's like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, I was, I thought for sure I had a home run. And so yeah, it's, it's, that would be another suggestion I get is, uh, I guess, is really having, um, some backups too in being flexible because like you said, they could show up in a mood or they might not be interested. So really playing with that flexibility because if you're just trying to push the same thing, like then you're just going to likely frustrate them and then that gets nobody anywhere. So yeah, we don't want to end up in a battle with a three year old. <laughs> you do not, because you will most likely lose. <laughs> they are very determined. Um I love this. And then, so our plan is to go through a specific theme and just talk about how we can use different materials. Um, but I'm curious too, um, because I like I know when I was first starting out with this population, I was like, I don't even know what's appropriate to target. Um, like, could you throw out just like a handful of goals that you find yourself, like goals or areas that you find yourself targeting a lot? Um, like what are, or maybe like, maybe we can start with, well, articulation, I think is pretty, um, pretty simple. Like we know we can easily determine, yeah. Um, and not simple, straightforward is a better word. Thank you. <laughs> um, but like what types of 
like receptive language skills are you often working on? Yeah, as far as receptive language, um, it's a lot of, I would say, identifying vocabulary, which is another reason why to have um, a lot of those figurines as you can. And, you know, I have a lot of them, but it's taken me time, you know, over time to kind of build up that. I don't suggest necessarily going out and spending a ton of money because we have so many resources in our world of, of kiddos who no longer play with things and they get sold at yard sales and now I guess on online avenues fairly easily. Um, but yeah, I would say it's a lot of um, basic identifying, but I prefer to have that be for actual items versus necessarily like pictures. Um, and then a lot of really simple following directions. And a lot of those will be for um, like routines versus novel. So I would say at this age, there's not a ton of novel directions. It's more basic routine based directions. So like put on our shoes, where's your coat? Um, like be kind to the doggy, like working on all of those things within our session as far as receptively goes. Um, and then also a lot of responding to their name and like joint attention. So joint attention kind of crosses that receptive expressive boundary, but usually at this age, when I have kiddos coming to me with more receptive things, we really have to work on that joint attention and being engaged um, in a lot of imitation as well too. So imitation really is our foundation for learning, right? Like if you typically developing children or children who are in speech therapy, a lot of the ways they learn both speech and language is like, you know, I say or do something, you say or do something. So there's that imitation piece. I once had a little one, I think he came to me at like 19 months old um, and he had no words and he actually even had very minimal babbling. And as I evaluated him, what one of our goals ended up being was just play imitation because I said, you know, we have our gross motor and then our fine motor and speech is really, um, a, it's a finely complex fine motor task. So he, but he wasn't even imitating like gross motor play. So we had to go backtrack a little bit and like if I would build up some blocks and knock them down, he wouldn't try to not, he wouldn't try to do the same. So we really had to integrate imitation in there. So that's something I definitely look for. And when I'm working with younger kiddos and that becomes almost like a precursor goal that I work on a lot before we're actually saying like, Oh, I say ball. I expect you to say ball. So, um, does that answer most of your question there as far as some of that receptive yeah, piece? Yeah, and that just sparked a memory that I have. I haven't looked into the research on this in a while, so definitely like check it first. But um, because I love how you mentioned that you're using like the play imitation, gross motor actions um, to be able to like roll that into the like the speech kind of sound imitation pieces. There's actually um, like a, a – manual that breaks that process down. And I think it's based, it's like, it comes from the ABA world, um, but it's rapid motor imitation antecedent training. Um, and I, like, I just dabbled using that with some of my, um, like I worked in a autism preschool for a couple of years and that was something that 
I started trying towards the end of my time and it was just really cool to see because the the concept is like you kind of build that behavioral progression and do like a bunch of more gross motor kind of imitations. And then it, it was amazing how it actually worked. So you got them like following that pattern and then they it was easier for them to imitate some of the sound. Yeah, I said that too in my conversation with um, an occupational therapist that I often we refer clients back and forth is she'll do the same, but like from a motor planning perspective. So for her, it's um, building like motor sequences in a way that kind of sets the stage for creating more motor sequences. So um, that starts getting out of my realm of expertise as far as <laughs> where that, where that, what that actually the the precursor and the foundations behind that. But her and I kind of cross paths with a lot of those kiddos who aren't talking at all. Like if we're questioning some motor planning, um, where she works on it from one perspective and I work on it from another perspective, and it seems it seems to help them. Yeah, and I think it's just like that momentum plays a role, too. Like, yes. Yeah. Like I even had that, I'm thinking back, because I worked in a clinic, I don't even, it wasn't that long ago. I am the worst historian though, but I ended up using that strategy with some of my students who were just, I guess maybe resistant. Like they were, like, I felt like they were just kind of shy and like they, they were like really like they knew that communication was hard. So I think they just tried to avoid it. But if I combine like those motor actions with it, then they just like, if we like make our arms super big or we jump and we do all these things, then they're like having fun and we're doing it. And then if I do, if I do the movement and pair it with a sound, then they say the sound beautifully. But if I just have them say like, even just like, Ooh, if I just say, Ooh, and then they say nothing. But if I move my arms and do it, then they do it. It's so funny how that works. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of research about um, like motor and speech together. And we obviously won't get into all of that now. But, um, you know, it's even for adults. They talk about when you're learning, if you're doing some kind of movement, like either walking on a treadmill or something, that it actually um, stores the information further. So it applies to our younger kiddos too. But we would have to find the specific research and in, in steps to do that effectively. Brush that part of um, my brain. <laughs> yes. And then um, I think then expressively is pretty simple. Like a lot of my kiddos at that age, you know, they have some kind of delayed language or delayed speech. So most common um, in that preschool age, I get, um, you know, initiating. And then if we're supposed to be doing two word utterances, we're only doing one, you know, building the length of utterance, or if we're at a two word stage and we're supposed to be talking in three to four. So really building the utterance length. Um, I do a lot of social, you know, kind of social stuff with kids this age from an expressive standpoint. Um, Because like you said, if there's a barrier to language or speech, we see a lot of them kind of shut down a little bit. So um, getting them to learn how to effectively communicate. I teach a lot of sign language at this age. Um, and, you know, we're kind of talking about the more involved kiddos. Um, I do have some preschool kids where that stuff is fairly intact and we're working on um, like a lot of sequencing, storytelling, like kind of seeing the beginning of some executive function stuff, but at an earlier level. So um, I would say the majority of them though would cover those bases when I'm working with them. Yeah, that's super helpful. And it just kind of helps 
kind of frame our reference point as we start diving into the theme-based idea. So do you think we're ready for that or is there something else? Sure. Okay. Um, so we talked about, like we chatted a little before we went live, but we decided to go through a zoo theme. Um, so I'm curious, like, let's say that you're planning to use the zoo theme next week. Like, what would you do to set that up and kind of prepare for it? Yeah, so I have, um, I found these plastic storage boxes <laughs> that have handles on them and they are like the best thing ever. Maybe that's even a resource I could send you that would be helpful to um, speech pathologists because then I can carry them around to different places. Um, but what I do for my zoo theme, my zoo like safari theme, um, another actually great thing for this age are the polka dot books. Um, so they're, again, that same physical, like that that pop, that cause and effect. So I grab, um, I have a polka dot safari, and then I grab some of my more classic books like Goodnight Gorilla, Dear Zoo, um, Polar Bear, Polar Bear, all of those. And then I gather any of figurines I have. So I have little people, zoo animals. I have a couple of puppets um, and old Beanie Baby stuffed animals. And then any dress up that I have. So right now in my Safari Zoo box, I have like a vest and binoculars. Binoculars, they love to do the pretend play with binoculars. Um and like a flashlight that they can shine on the animals. And then I always have just some songs like tucked away that I enjoy. Um, for this one, I specifically like, there's a song. Um, oh, I, I change it to Down in the Jungle. I forget. Actually, Down in the Jungle might be the original version. I can't remember. But, um, you know, you can look up lots of songs, of course. But I like Down in the Jungle. Um and then there's one that talks about all different animals that are in the jungle and does some describing for them. So I typically gather all those materials. Um, now I've been working for so many years, I don't even really think about each child. I just bring the box with me. And then I kind of, when we start a session, I'm able to open it up and pull out the different things and, um, you know, use things like blankets or the hiding or the top tube or surprise boxes that I just use those materials within those types of settings. Yeah, I love that. Um, and then I think, so we've got our materials organized and I love that you mentioned like a specific storage box because that's definitely my <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, so we have this uh, zoo, like safari theme box. We've got all of our materials. Um, let's talk a little bit about maybe like some hypothetical therapy plans. Okay. So um, maybe we can pick like, a couple different types of students and how we could use the different materials. Um, like, do you have a student in mind that would be a good one to start with? Um, let me think. I, yes. Um, maybe if we had a child who um, was even, okay. So say we talk about some basic like um, signing or one word utterances with our beginning sounds. So more, please, all done, um, pop, boo, etc. So these would be, I would have um, like singing songs with the puppets um, and then hiding them um, or doing the peekaboo with the different animals. Um, like I mentioned earlier, having the figurines and putting them in a bean bucket. So um, I sometimes will put like the, the cover on top of the bucket and wait for them to sign more or please or play. Um, and then we open it up. And then when we find the animals, I do a lot of animal sounds. 
So that, like you mentioned, that like kind of that imitation and um, there's a lot of vowel sounds, a lot of beginning sounds in there. Um, and I will simplify a lot of those too, to like just the vowel versus like the whole um, word if it's needed. So basically just using those themes more as like the motivators, I guess, for those simple structures for the kiddos who are working on really basic language. Um, and then I'm trying to think if we get to more preschool age, I do a lot of um, taking turns, following directions, like describing the animals, like what do they like to eat? What parts do they have? Um, we go through a lot like that. I forget the name of it. There's like a visual checklist of like who, what, where, parts, name, like you go through all the different things, like the different language um, to describe them. And then that's another thing where the hide and seek comes into play because sometimes I actually will hide it and I'll say, ooh, it's somewhere under a blue chair and like give them those prepositions, um, those items around the room for some following directions. And then the opposite, I'll let them hide it and have to give me the direction of where to find it. Um, giving clues, if they have something hidden in a box or a bag, they can describe it to you if you have to guess it. Um, I'm trying to think, I kind of jumped from your, your younger age to the preschool age there. Um, and then any of the stories. So you can always do story retell. Um, I do a lot of fill in the blank with stories. So if it's repetitive, I will like read the beginning of the phrase and leave off the end and have them do some of those close, those close phrases, those fill in the blanks. Um, and then a lot of those books, like with the animals are so engaging. So like polar bear, polar bear, I do a lot of like, oh, what does he hear? And then we turn it and we say the animal and like, it makes them all excited. <laughs> um, and then also for that preschool age, as I mentioned earlier, like the flashlight or the binoculars, kids absolutely love to do this. So if you put the animals either around your room or like in a, make a zoo, like a pretend zoo where they're in um, like their cages or whatever, having them either search through the binoculars to see what they can find or shining a flashlight on them before they tell you the animal's name and describe what it looks like to them. Did I cover it all? Did I get off on a little bit of a tangent there? <laughs> no, that's perfect. And I think it's, um, I know it's so hard. Like I always struggle with, cause I love to give like concrete examples, but if like, it's so much easier to think of activities when you know, like, okay, I'm seeing Johnny, like, this is what we did last time. This is what he's working on. Like you can really see that child and it's harder to come up with these hypothetical yeah. <laughs> plans. So um, you rock that. I, I was going to say, I, cause for the most of them, it's a, I do for this age, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of naming, describing, prepositional phrases, like following basic directions. So um, even though it's not really a, here's the child, here's what we worked on, I feel like most of them would cover those bases somewhere. So hopefully uh, that would be some helpful information to, to spark some ideas. Yeah. And for the earlier communicators, um, like there won't be as much of that, as much of the talking, but all of these things can be turned into a game and like play is that's those students or it is still for preschool too, but that's how they learn. Yeah. We can totally set up the activity to elicit the, like the signs or the one word phrases or whatever we're trying to target. Yes. Um, we can just be like you said, the bean bucket and the binoculars could be fun too. Or like even, I don't know if you ever do this, but um, in when I was in the preschool 
we had a lot of songs um, and the teacher just had the CD, but I found them on YouTube too. So maybe it's not like perfect for <laughs> like we want to limit screen time. Um, but that can be like a fun occasional activity because they'll they'll definitely request more and um, like play and all of that with the sap, the songs and yeah, and like music and music is so motivating for this young age too that you know integrating that even more into the session is is another way just to reinforce what you're working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then so I think a huge component of like what we're doing with these like, well, in any type of therapy um, is being able to have the students continue like practicing the skills when they get home. Um, So I'm curious, like if we're using the zoo theme example, like what would you, and maybe we can focus on like early, the early communicator and the preschooler and kind of like brainstorm a couple of quick ideas on how we would like communicate what we did to parents and how we might be able to encourage them to like carry some of that into their their daycare or their home. Yeah, I do. Of course, in private practice, I have access to speak to those parents. So a lot of them will sit in on my sessions or I'll give them a very specific task of like, oh, they really loved playing, um, putting the monkeys and elephants and snakes like um down a slide or something and just like encourage that they take the one piece that was really motivating. Um, when it's at school, you don't have that direct access. Um, but sometimes I'll write like notes home to the parents or send a quick email. So one of the biggest things I would say too, is just really to start with those books and it's easy to get books from the library. if We don't own the one that we were using and really just pointing out to them that, Oh, I use the, like, like ooh, ooh, ooh on every single page or really I was just looking for them to like I would hold it until they gave me eye contact and then I would turn it. So really just picking one piece um, that targets that goal, but that would be easy for parents to carry over. I think when you give them too much information, it's a little overwhelming. Um, and also like encouraging them to do that pretend play, but I found that a lot of parents have a like, not not a lot of them, but when they aren't being modeled what I'm doing, they have a harder time kind of conceptualizing that. Um, So just really being as detailed as you can for them to take what you're doing and really encouraging them that here's the simplified version. Like we're not going, ooh, ooh, ah, ah, I'm a monkey. We're just saying, ooh, ooh, like encouraging them that the simplified version is a step in the direction that we want to go, but at that child's level. And in, in kind of giving them the confidence to just start with something small based on what you're doing. I love that. And that's so much more feasible and like they're more likely to remember that. Like I sometimes go, this is a little tangent, but like sometimes I'll go to physical therapy and she'll give me like five exercises to do. And it's like, ah, oh, like especially I need as, one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're a parent and you have a kid with special needs plus probably multiple kids and a job and all these things going on. I think like really small, specific things are so incredibly helpful and like t- doable. So then and they they're more like- likely to carry over one small task than uh-huh. to like disregard five of them. So I would rather they have one tangible piece of information that's actually going to be implemented than, you know, being overwhelmed. Yeah, I love that. Like if the child is working on like joint attention, maybe we can work on making eye contact 
or like kind of a precursor skill. We'll work on eye contact before we put the animal down the slide or whatever it may be. And if we're working on retail, do like read one page, then ask a question about it rather than doing the whole book and then be like, so what was it about? (laughs) Like breaking it down for them. Yeah. I love it. And that's totally doable. Like it's easy for us to, like we can easily think of one activity, especially if it's something that the student was especially engaged in, like that easily stands out. And it's easy for the parents to implement too. I love those tips. So helpful. Um, okay. So I, I feel like we've got some good ideas going on here. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just really hoping that, um, it'd be some information just to even like inspire people to kind of think a little differently about the materials they have. Um, and as I mentioned before, I can send you over, um, my website where I have actually, um, some Amazon links to a lot of the games and activities I mentioned. And then also there's a whole bunch on there that I didn't necessarily mention specifically, but are definitely some of my favorites. So maybe I can send that over to you, um, so your listeners can browse through if it's something that they're interested in looking at. Yeah, I would love that. That is perfect. So I'll put that link in the show notes. Um, so that that'll be at slpnow.com slash 38. And then Allison, what would be like if SLPs are wanting to like learn more about like working with early childhood or like just boosting their skills, um, like where can they find you or what resources would you recommend? Yeah, um, I do have my website, which is allisonpcludier.com. Um, and actually, I probably, you could probably link that as well, right? So I won't have to spell my, my whole name there. Um, and I do have some trainings for speech pathologists. Um, they're up on there now. I'm working on creating um, a more streamlined process for those, but people could certainly reach out to me um, and we could talk about it. And that actually is including a lot of the content from my presentations that I give and encouraging everyone how to build those relationships with daycares and preschools. So there's information on running the therapy, but also how to do that if it's something you're interested in. Um, And I also have a little bit of um, one-on-one coaching too, that if someone feels like they want some specific feedback and ideas, they could do that. And then you and I together have been working on, you know, some of those themed ideas where people would have access to using those themes and kind of have it all compiled for them together. So I'm happy to have people send me emails to ask questions, to check out those as resources um, or, you know, within your system to take kind of that knowledge of the thematic units and apply them as needed. I love it. And um, amazing resources. So excited that um, people will get to find out more about you and what you do. And I so appreciate your time. Thank you so much for sharing all of these amazing tips and tricks. Um, I'm definitely super grateful. So thank you. And thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.